from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. Coming to you from Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto Locust Walk on a picture-perfect, picture-perfect May morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, collaborators, and faculty colleagues, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to have you all here. Eric Bradlow will walk in here at some point this morning. We're all going to be here for the next two hours. You guys can join us if you'd like. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at com, Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle. We follow all of our sports analytics guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics up there. It's a good way to stay in touch with that world. Also, stay in touch with us. Give us an opinion, a complaint, an over-under for our over-under segment late in the day at W Moneyball is probably the best way to reach out to us. Do it real time. We've got, got, got you up on the screen right now if you want to give us give us a hit up there. We've got a regular show in that we have a guest at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. Looking forward to talking a little golf with Brandel Chambly at the bottom of this hour and then talking baseball with Jay Jaffe, noted baseball columnist, writer, follower, Jay Jaffe at the top of the hour. Between now and then, open lines. You guys can jump in here. We got a lot to talk about, lots going on. Fellas, I'm curious. So many possibilities. I'm curious what's caught your eye in the world of sports. Well, there's, there's a lot there's of a right excitement. answer to this, by the way. I know there's a right answer. You you can talk about the, the draft just caught yeah, everyone's come eyes. On, and come the on. I think it's probably the right move. The Game of Thrones. What is it? Which is does that count as a sport? Well, it has the word game in it. No. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's I, game I heard, of thrones. I yeah. heard there's analytics in, in that the Washington is that the Washington Post has somebody count up the fatalities every show. Like there's a yeah. there's a digital producer whose job it is after every show to literally count the fatalities. So she's got to go through even on wow, episodes so like this that, week. I mean, she she had to work overtime this past yeah, no, week. I, I, I mean, we shouldn't. I, it's still okay counting. for spoilers, still right? Yeah, spoiler. yeah. Spoiler. We, we, we will, we're past the. We're not going to hold back on. Game okay, all right. But, but 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 the first thing we have to talk about is the NBA lottery last yeah. night. So they lotteried the draft order last night. They turned this. That's a new system dead. too, where they've actually kind of evened out the probabilities a little bit, so that uh, you know, I, I guess to kind it's of disincentivize, yeah, disincentivize tanking. So let, to be precise, the worst team in the NBA went from having a twenty-something probability of getting the first pick down to a fourteen. Yeah, and they shared that. I 14. think the top three uh, or the worst three teams share the same probability. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think I think the worst team has a little bit higher probability of being in the top five. Maybe they're protected in the top five. So there's a difference from mm-hmm. being the worst, but there's no difference in getting the in getting the top yeah. five. And that 14%, that's pretty low. I mean, It is. You, you, all these teams are the worst. And they only have a, a whatever that is, one in six, one in, one in seven chance, whatever that is, of getting of getting the top pick. So we saw our friend Michael Salfino said, if you want to feel what this feels like, New York fans, he said this is basically 
the on-base percentage of the average pitcher in Major League Baseball. That's, <laughs> that's what a good that's analogy. What I like that. I like that. on all the time. <laughs> yeah. Is that about one in seven? It turns yeah. out. Yeah. Um, so the 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 drama it was it was it was a little it was a little dramatic actually. I, I decided to watch the damn thing. Just to, I watched it on my phone, but I watched it because look, and this is going to change some franchises' trajectory, mm-hmm. you know, probably for a long time. Because Zion Williamson is supposed to apparently. Yeah, I mean, this year it's particularly notable because I I think he's kind of one of these transcendent talents. I mean, like last year, the year before, we wouldn't necessarily be talking this way, right? For sure, for sure. So this is, you know, people say once in a generation, you know, about every three or four years, but he does feel like a once in a generational player. So it leads me to ask the question how many transgenerational talents have there been every three or four years that have turned into duds? Yeah, right. Can Mm -hmm. we think of a few off the top of our head? We need Eric for that. I'm not. Greg Odom. <laughs> well, I don't think people flat. were talking about Greg Odom that way. But what was well, the last other generational than the fact talent? That they took him before Kevin Durant. Yeah, so you had yeah. to be pretty good to take him before Kevin Durant. Oh, I, I can't do that. I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not up enough on NBA to do that. I don't keep it in my memory like that. But it, but we we just know this happens in football yeah. all the time. Absolutely. So I mean, the, the one the, the example that I was thinking about in fo- that I always think about in football is the year Reggie Bush came out. And if you watched him in college, you were convinced that he was special, but he was a special college player. But people talked about him as if he was going to be a once-in-a-generation player. And it turned out to be a, you know, an okay, fine. He was a great player, but yeah, he was he certainly was not a, what one would call a generational kind of talent in the NFL. So the drama last night was they, they, they broke up the telecast from the first, whatever, 10, 10 picks, 14 to 5, and then they went to break, and they came back into the Final Four. And, and in that break, the Knicks were still in it, of course, that's the drama because you know the Knicks got the Ewing. Yeah. One of the first was it the first lottery ever, and, and people thought that it was rigged because, of course, they gave Ewing the the generational player that came out that year to the Knicks. So there was all this talk that they're going to finally you know, rig it and give it back to the Knicks. But the Lakers were in there also, and I think that would have been the worst outcome in my mind. <laughs> I, I just, I, anybody with the Lakers was kind of in my mind, but you got the Knicks and Lakers, two of the fanciest franchises, arguably the fanciest franchises in. The NBA in the running for the yeah. for the top for the top pick, but then they get knocked out number four and number three straight away, and you're left with these two small market teams, Memphis and, and New Orleans. And New Orleans, of course, lands the pick. And one of the you know, special little details there is that Anthony Davis is already in New Orleans. People thought they were going to trade him, and now maybe he'll stay. So, is New Orleans on the map now for the next ten years? Or are they going to be the next freaking Golden State? And this is. Really, a possible big and change. Certainly, I mean, it, it, they're they're more likely to be, do that now than they were before they got that pick. I, I, and I think, it, but it, there's so much downstream kind of good management that has to happen from here on out, right? Yeah. What do we know about the the New Orleans Pelicans management and and ownership and how they're run? The, well, I mean, is, it's 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 hard to kind of read through kind of the noise and confusion that surrounded the whole Anthony Davis. I mean, do we call it a debacle or what do we call it this season where, you know, I mean, he expressed a lot of discontent. He wanted to kind of, you know, be on a contender and, and you know, they kind of struggled to move him, basically. But, but was it a... I don't know how much it was yeah. a conscious choice to hold on to this guy in the hopes that basically this happens and they get, you know, Zion Williamson and they can kind of take off with Anthony Davis still in house. Or do they now trade Anthony Davis anyway and try and kind of load up for two or three years from now when Zion Williamson's hitting his prime? Oh, it's just incredible the way they're moved around by chance. I mean, yeah. this is this is an entire city. This is no, I mean, franchise's I mean, history. I mean, you think about the kind of trajectory of the process here in, in, in Philadelphia, you know, where— 
they basically, you know, I mean, that, that was kind of a process that embraced, uh, you know, embraced or at least acknowledged the variability and randomness of, of things like yeah. draft lotteries. Yeah, but this was in Philadelphia and was a five-year process at least. And but but there was also some bad, there was a lot of bad luck and stuff like that in terms of which slots they got in sure. the draft lotteries but as well is, but during that try, process. But they were trying to mitigate it by, they embraced it completely, but but essentially by saying, we're going to lose for years. I mean, that's what was so frustrating no, well, but But the, they also... You know, you wonder what could have happened, what the Sixers team... I mean, the Sixers team is already impressive when we we'll probably talk about their run or whatever this season. The Sixers team is already impressive, but think about what they could have been with some better luck yeah. in those actual draft lotteries. Yeah. And, and you're correct, but also the luck of getting the... There's a lot of luck in the success of the pick as well. Of course. I mean, of course, yeah. Consensus twos and threes where the those guys flame out and the best players eighth or 27th. I mean, yeah. it's just unbelievable. There is a fairly steep fall-off from one to two if you look at the last 30 years of draft picks. It's not that there's not a lot of value in, in, coming in out basketball. of two. Yeah, there's a lot of value that comes out of two and three. But if you look at the number ones, if you look at the last 30 of them, you'll recognize their names. <laughs> so they I, turn into very good I, players. I, I, well, there have been some busts, oh, though. Sure, of course. Yeah. But uh, as a group, they are, they are collectively the best set, and, and I think they dominate. It would be fun things to, to study, but they clearly dominated over NFL's number one picks. Yeah, so basketball in general, this is there's a steeper curve. They're, they seem to be more identifiable in basketball than they are in football. So, by the way, the the Pelicans' ownership, of course, is the same as the Saints down there. And one of the complaints is that they they favor the Saints. They care only about mm-hmm. football. They don't care enough about basketball. And I mean, this is kind of this fascinating perpetual question of what 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 are the ingredients for a successful club? And and by successful, I don't mean like one Super Bowl, but like a real run or one mm-hmm. NBA championship, but a real run. How much of it is players, transcendent players? How much of it is good coaches? How much of it is management and ownership? And how much of it is luck? And how much of it is luck? <laughs> luck exactly. yeah, well, yeah. speaking of which, where, where where are you guys in the NBA playoffs? Because we've just advanced into oh, the come on. conference it's finals. It's a tragedy. Well, it was sad for us here in Philadelphia. Yeah. Are, so, are you, I don't have a great sense of your NBA heart and how, how strongly invested you are in basketball. I'm, I'm a little more surprised. More and more, more and more. I mean, I, I legitimately will say that the the Sixers are my are my Philly allegiance, as I opposed to the Phillies or Eagles. As opposed to the Phillies, or as opposed flyers, to the Eagles or Flyers, okay. or, or certainly, I mean, so so yeah. So I'm certainly a Yankee fan. The Phillies are fun to watch, but no, um, sorry, folks. Um, <laughs> but I don't. You're really allowed have, to have an NL yeah, allegiance. I do. So they are now my NL team. But you know, okay. come on. Um, yeah. And so and but but genuinely, I, I'm rooting for the Sixers, particularly because they're a fun team to watch. They I watched through this whole process thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the this is the, the the fruit of that of that process. Um, it was it was hard it was heartbreaking to watch yeah. that basketball go in mm-hmm. and certainly. Toronto, they were going crazy, but it was what was interesting to see uh, Kawhi Leonard sh- make that shot. I mean, mo- uh, most of us watched it, or at least it's watched an amazing the replay shot. Of it. Actually, we'll be watching guarded. highlights of that for like you'll decades. A long time. Well, you'll remember it for the yeah. rest of your life. He was yeah. guarded by Joel Embiid. Yeah, right. he and the guy's gigantic, yeah. and so he had to shoot over him. Yeah. So if you look at the arc, and almost the reason, the the, the trajectory of the of the of the shot was almost it was extremely vertical, right. and it makes this enormously high trajectory, then comes almost straight down on the basket, and then plops down on the rim. And because of that trajectory, it didn't just bounce off; right, it right. went straight up. Right. So it's almost because Joel Embiid was blocking it, it yeah. caused him to shoot it at this arc, landing on the rim, and then bouncing straight up, and then almost as high as it. I mean, I don't, I don't remember 
I don't remember many meaningful basketball shots that hit the rim four times before they go in. I mean, oh, oh no. yeah, no, I think it's pretty unusual. And oh, I think no. I, I think it does need to, this kind of special recipe of like this kind of unusual trajectory. I think there's a reason we do um, not see yeah. that many shots bounce it's, it's four times. It's, 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 as Audie was talking about, I think there was a, kind of a, a perfect spore, a storm as far as that trajectory I mean, did you, goes. Did you, in, in the moment, did you have the experience of like there was a, there was the a pause. Stopped. You felt the pause. Yeah. I mean, you felt everything paused and waited for this yeah. thing to be sorted out. I mean, yeah. it didn't happen. Yeah. It was like the Matrix where everything stops, you know, and they're, they're and fighting. And I think I read somewhere that's the only time that they're, like a Game seven's actually yeah. been decided on. In the uh, history of about NBA, that, no, which, which really shocks me, actually, is that somehow considering I mean, we had a lot of Game 7s out <laughs> yeah. there. And it seems to me like every basketball game, assuming it's it closed, down comes wire. down to a shot like that. But <laughs> It feels like anyway. the NBA. I mean, it, it, what is it about basketball that makes you just – you don't really need to watch the game until – you want to turn it on and get a flavor for things, but you don't really need to watch well, the game I, until the last eight minutes. I mean, minutes. it's fun to watch the game, but I, I just it, – it helped me. Uh, you know, I, I kind of flipped a switch in terms of my ba- my ability to kind of um, really invest in basketball once I realized that you can watch the first 58 minutes of a game and just recognize it's a different kind of game. And then there's a different game that happens in the last two or three minutes, right? right. You know, because, I mean, I, they get some ridiculous, like, seven timeouts or something like that per half in, in the yeah. NBA. And so there's, a, you know, the, the most of the game is like this, usually this kind of fast-flowing kind of give and take. And then there's this kind of, it switches to like a, a football game in the last two minutes where there's a huge strategy component and positioning and timeouts play a gigantic role. So that suggests, people talk about this casually. I haven't seen any empirics on it maybe someone's done something but it suggests that teams ought to be evaluated in these different phases yeah and people talk about teams being constructed well for the end of game situation or for the playoff situation or for the end of playoff game situation some teams are constructed supposedly well for those yeah. some coaches are supposedly there's been a knock lately on um the rockets coach then Tony about he's his not being a good playoff slash right. end of game because he's kind of a let him play kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, not a yeah. good set piece guy. And so I would just like to see empirics on how much this is true. Are there is there real separation? Or what you need to show is it's not just that the best teams in general are of course good are the, are the best yeah. at the end of the game. You need to say well this team is kind of really good in normal situations, but they're not so exceptional at these. End yeah, of the game and I don't situations. know. I, I haven't seen much in terms of like evaluating teams or coaches at that level. There is a movement to kind of try and evaluate players a little bit more in terms of like you know I mean clutch perform you know kind of performance in those last few minutes like so, like like kind of. A win. You could talk about, you know, I mean, the analog in baseball is talking about high leverage versus low low leverage situations, Good, right? Right. But it's what it would be nice is just let's open the aperture a little bit and not talk about clutch in terms of okay, did this guy get the sh- did he make the shot at this key moment? Yeah. But rather, does the offense function well? In these end of game yeah, situations, yeah, 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 and I mean, right? I mean, you don't want to talk about clutch as far as one shot or like anything like that, but you can talk about like how this person, this kind of person's average performance in these kind of end game situations versus non end game situations. I, and, but I mostly think it's interesting. I agree, but I, I also think it's interesting to think about at the team level. I suppose we, mm-hmm. we focus no, too much too. on the individual yeah. player because the, I mean, it, it is. It may be, and this is one argument that individual players matter most in those moments. That yeah, a team can get by without having that one superstar who can get his shot always 
up until that moment. But if, when it comes down to it, you got to yeah. have a guy who maybe that's we'll called the Bradlow principle. That's Bradlow. Yeah, first era, of all, yeah. There's a couple of things there. First of all, the team seem to always go to their star at the end. So whether or not that's the best strategy, that seems to be what they do. So how are we going to you know disentangle the effect of, of that 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 actual choice on on outcomes? Hey, so we, 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 we want you right? to pr- solve the problems, Adi, not <laughs> yeah. just raise the right. problems. Yeah. Well, you know, we could say, uh, you know what, coaches, it's time for some experimentation at the end. Yes. <laughs> you know, what's interesting there is they've got a locker room to manage, and uh, there's a there's a real issue if you don't yeah. if you don't give your best guy the ball. That's a, there's a real yep. challenge there. Yeah. But I actually, but my, but my basic sense is that that there has been some look at breaking the the basketball game in, into segments and looking. And I would I would be strongly prior towards not seeing it. Yes, because I, I, because, I can tell you. because it doesn't exist. Do you believe, or because there's just not we you know we yes, we, we, we wouldn't have enough repetition, and there wouldn't be enough kind of disentangling, you know, these kind of no. contexts in order to actually detect to, it. To answer that question, it's the usual answer that no, I believe it exists. I just believe yeah. in general that it's small, and where it might be a little bit different, it's too infrequent to get through that background mm-hmm. of uh, variation. And this happens all the time. We talk about leverage in baseball, and you think that in, in baseball. You you could see something because there's so many players and so much repetition. But if you actually try to adjust for, for all those vast numbers of multiplicities, the numbers of players and numbers of games, you really can't see anything. And that's because the Other effect... than David Ortiz. <laughs> even, you know, even David Ortiz. Probably not statistically you know, significant. And, so, and that's obvious, because there's anyway. hundreds of hundreds yeah. of players playing over dozens of, potentially dozens of seasons. It's like an Ortiz case. But, you know, so the thing is, is that as a fan, as a, as a, as a watcher of the game, you still want to credit that amazing performance when you're doing it when when the chips are down when it counts the most but it doesn't predict in the future so so i i I, one i think the the null is the you know good skeptical hypothesis to hold but um i I, again i I think we need to move from thinking about this as individual player clutch clutch shooting clutch batting which is how we usually think about it to the team level performance and I think we, I, I, I'm, I'm okay accepting. I mean, Shane's starting place here was the game's just different in basketball in the last two, three minutes, especially yeah. in a playoff game. I can accept that. And if it's different, then it stands to reason that teams will perform differently. But I, I mean, we, I don't think. The and I think, is there, I think coaches probably do. I mean, you know, and, and I think again, the analog in football would be somebody who, like, you know, a coach that, you know. Is is really good at like kind of designing, scheming, and 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 using their personnel effectively. But in that kind of very stark, like last two minutes of the yeah. game when timing's important. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking Andy Reid, for example. You know that people right. kind of anecdotally, at least, people believe that he's got this deficiency. Yeah. And so why wouldn't there be a basketball right. analog of that, where like a coach is really good at managing personnel, scheming for the rest of the game, but not for this sort of like a hundred percent agree. And, and it's more important in basketball. Yeah. There are more data points in basketball. You should be able to see it. And by the way, there is the after timeout analyses of they give coaches credit for drawing up X's and O's mm-hmm. just right in the, in the in ATOs. Yeah. And so that's you know, there are more ATOs in the last three minutes than any other part of the game. And so that's part of it. And we do think there are substantive coaching differences on ATOs. Just got a note in from Eric Bradlow, who is you know who <laughs> Matt Matt won't take his calls. He won't take his calls. I mean, he's just jumping in. He's, I mean this is I mean the thing is, is Eric sometimes is such a, a a Sixers fan. So he he wants to remind everyone that Jimmy Butler is the go-to guy at the end for the Sixers. And Embiid just cannot be given the ball at the well, end. Well, Eric's had this hypothesis for a while. That, that hypothesis for so a while. So I called it Bradlow principle. Well, yeah. well it's no, the big yeah. man can't get a shot. Like yeah, you, yeah. Can't, you can't rely. You, your best guy can't be a big guy because in the end, when you have to get someone. He's never going to get to the post. Is that it? He, well, yeah, he just can't get it on his own. That, that, that could be defended, essentially. Um, 
Anyway, so so what else about the NBA playoffs, fellas? Well, the, 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 the Warriors. Bucks, the Bucks took care. Let's stay in these for a second. Oh, Bucks yeah. took care of the Celtics, kind of an. I'm excited. I mean, you know, that. yeah. I mean, and to certain this this playoffs, I I mean, I, I still think, ironically, it's going to go the way I predicted from the start of the season. I think Golden State will probably end up being champions, but I am more excited this playoff. It's playoffs than why, usual. Why is it? So, by the way, it's still chalky as all get out. It's yeah, one and two in the East yeah, and no, one and three. Right. In the I, West. I guess I'm just sort of because I've been watching more closely. I'm more excited about the East matchup, even if yeah. I think it's going to be inconsequential come finals time. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be really cool to sort of see, you know, Kawhi versus, you know, the Greek freak yep. in, in the East. Yep. Um, and also, I mean, I think the Duran injury does kind of maybe do you, did you even know like the Warriors you know? are like 26 and 1 in the last 27 games without Duran. Yeah, no, Curry played it. So it's interesting because for, Vegas doesn't is, was upset by Durant's injury, and and they they have pumped down yeah. you know the huge overwhelming favorite by a little bit, right? So so clearly the market like, like what do you have since it's I think it's down by 10 percent maybe is okay. and in terms of uh, implied mm-hmm. probability, which is a so lot. Like, yeah, 70 to 60, 70 to 60 or 675 to 65. So it's a, a big it's, move. A, it's a fairly big move, but it's it's and that's and that of course is driven by the fan base. You have to recognize that sometimes particularly in these big games there's there can be movements that are different from from what the models or statistical models right. say and that maybe is, is something we'll think about hey, as by, an opportunity by, to bet. By the way, Rufus and I have long observed that markets overreact to single player right. injuries mm-hmm. in football. They, they, yeah. That any given player doesn't matter as much as the market thinks that it does. And, and Unless that, that player is a quarterback. Even then, they probably overreact. But probably. you're right. The overreaction is stronger but for non-quarterbacks. One would argue that it's justified in basketball usually because there is such dominance at the superstar level. So if LeBron James goes out in, in previous right. seasons with, with Cleveland, it's, it's all it's all over, right? So that's an extreme case. But in this particular example, when the Warriors are so stacked, and I'll just again I'll, I'll quote Eric Bradlow: "There's only one ball in basketball, and it needs to be, and a shot can be taken only by one person at a time." Yeah. And when you when you knock out Durant, and there you have you know Steph Curry to step up and get more more more, more ball time, what does that do to your differential? And the answer is not much. Well, I, I yeah, and I'm not actually really arguing against you because I, I you're, you're right you're correct I just I will my my counter argument will be Steph Curry can have bad games and when Durant's in there Steph Curry is allowed to have bad games sure, and sure. then the Durant just takes over anyway whereas now they've just got they've got less margin for error they still have a substance enough margin for error that I think it's they're gonna win the championship but I do think you know the Durant injury does hurt them Quite substantially. I mean, I would, I would certainly move sure, a ten percent change in the probability sounds right to me. Because five thirty eight, which doesn't make adjustments based on injury, because they use an ELO model that they don't update, sort of famously for not doing this, and not that they don't do this out of out of principle. So the way Massey Peabody does that with football rankings, I'm quoting you in front of you, <laughs> is uh, is is because if you have found that it doesn't make a difference except for the quarterback, but I believe they're sixty eight percent, which is what they have now. For the Warriors to win it all is actually higher than Vegas. Yeah, and I mean they've got the Warriors at ninety five percent to win this series. The West, yeah, that's I that mean, seems about right. I mean, I mean that sounds right to me too. <laughs> yeah, well, right. And but, given last I night's mean, the real question is, yeah, really last six games. Hey, did y'all did y'all know Matt, Matt gave us this great stat? Since we're talking about the Blazers and their one in twenty chance of, of knocking off the Warriors, they the. Damian Lard and the Blazers have faced more NBA first and second team All Stars 
than in the playoffs this year. This year than LeBron did in the Eastern playoffs from 2011-2018. Eight years of Eastern Conference playoffs, LeBron saw fewer first- and second-team NBA All-Stars than Lillard and the Blazers have seen this season. Yeah. That's just unbelievable. No, and I mean, maybe part—I mean, I think part of my— you know, greater excitement for the playoffs this year is I'm watching more and just more engaged. But I think part of it is just LeBron's out of the East, so it's not this sort of, like, waiting time. Like, when, when LeBron was in the East with Cleveland, it was just this, yeah, like, you just waited. Good. You had to wait for the finals to get a compelling matchup. Right, yeah. Whereas now you don't have to. It, it, here's a, here's some blasphemy. Yeah. Is there any chance that basketball is more fun to watch when LeBron's not on the court? That's... I don't know. Is that wrong to say? no. It, I, I, I kind of like watching him play. I mean, but I, I mean, I think maybe certainly cer- play, he makes certain playoff series less compelling because he, you know, is so dominant. And so I, there's I, that. But I, I, I can't. I, I would not go so far to say. I mean, I, I do like I, watching I, I that guy play. I kind of feel that way. I'm not proud yeah. of it, but I kind of feel that way. This is Wharton Munbell. You can guys can join us one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two. 7866, or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane and Audie. What 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 else besides is there more NBA or you want to do something else? What do you got? Up? I don't have more NBA. Okay, I go, go, go. Oh, excellent. So I had an opportunity to, to spend some time watching some sports in live uh, venues this last couple days. Okay. On Sunday, I was in Boston. I went to Fenway Park for the first oh, time. Nice. I hadn't been to Fenway what? Park since I was about 11 years old. Oh, wow. wow. So I took my son there. He graduated, and we went to, to Fenway. It was horrifyingly bad weather. It was That'll happen. Freezing. That'll happen. Um, and a couple things. First of all, uh, you know, the, the Red Sox are, are doing very well. They started off so poorly. They're now there on a five or six game winning streak. I know they lost last night. Yeah, they did. Um, but, but they're, they, they, they're they clearly, happen, they, clearly they're above 500, which I'll, I'll take. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they look terrific. I mean, it looks like a championship team from last year has reemerged. But uh, shockingly to be in Fenway Park, it's, it's a different city than it was in certainly my recollection. Um, they have championship banners out there. Yeah. <laughs> four of them, in fact. And four of them. And there's a sort of a, a kind of like a, a niceness about the stadium in the sense that, you know, Boston fans historically were kind of rough and tumble. Um, and uh, that, that edge seems to have been sort of polished They've gotten off a soft little bit. a little bit. And uh, it was so cold, we, we left after about the, you know, we didn't really have a horse in the, in the game. Yeah. We, we left after about the seventh inning. Right next to it, there was a, there was a nice bar. We went, went and had a drink and, and some pizza. And the, the Bruins were everywhere, right? Because they were playing live mm-hmm. at that time, and people were just sort of very casual. Okay. Oh, really? Another another championship for another team for us here. So it was it was a shockingly civil experience in Boston compared to I remember. I'll just I remember when I was 11 years old because someone had the audacity to wear a Yankee hat. And there was like a, a riot in yeah. the stands trying to tear it off the guy's head, which they successfully did. And it just didn't seem to be. And I walked into the sports bar and we asked to put the Yankees game on. And instead of like, you know, a, a stream of profanity, which was was what I've ex- expected from the old days, a, a very nice person said, oh, let me check with our manager. We'll, we'll happily turn on one of the screens is, for the is. Yankee game yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was somewhat, somewhat shocking. And then, and then of course, uh, I had the, the ter- opportunity. We drove out to Cooperstown and spent, and I, this was the first time I've ever been to Cooperstown, which is odd considering I've spent so much of my adult life, you know, thinking about models for predicting and studying the Hall of Fame. It was my yeah. first visit to the actual place. And my, my recollection was it seemed a little bit, it was wonderful, but it was, it, it was, I expected more of a spectacle. 
Okay. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was again more of a, it was very it was very it wasn't subdued, but it was it wasn't as grand as I or it wasn't grand or kitschy, which is was some, something I guess what I thought I would see. Hmm. So, by the way, where is that, and what was it like going between Boston and there to here? Like, where, 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 I don't even know exactly. Is it New York? Cooperstown yeah, it's in is, the middle of New York. It, it's, it's nowhere. Pretty close to Ithaca, right? Yeah, it's about four I mean, hours. Um, thing. How did it come to be there? Well, there's, a, there's actually a history. Um, there's a, there was baseball played kind of all over the country, but it's a story that they allegedly crea- made baseball essentially created about itself. They said that Ab- Abner Doubleday invented baseball in Cooperstown in pre-Civil War at time, like in 1849. They made it up? And they essentially made it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's a total There's make-up. so much hucksterism in the, mi- in the mid-1800s. America in the mid-1800s, it was all hucksterism. All hucksterism. I wish I could say yeah, I Thank goodness it. we've gotten the hucksters out of our system. Oh, yeah. We're all, none of that anymore. None of that. <laughs> but Cooperstown is, is beautiful. It's a, it's an old kind of town with a main street and lots of little stores. And would it and, even exist if not for this thing? Uh, well, today perhaps not. I mean, I, I did pick up the, the the morning paper from the local you know town, and uh, they're losing population. I mean, these upstate towns are. are 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 desperate for people to move to them because there's no more industry. So I I heard from someone who just went to Canton a few weeks ago, and they said it was just horrible. What this, maybe there was somebody on our show. Was it someone on our show? I think we had someone on our show talking about going to Canton. And they, um, the, the city was just such a wreck. And mm-hmm. have it the, 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 the juxtaposition of the NFL Hall of Fame and the tragedy yeah. of the streets were, was pretty strong. I doubt Springfield, Massachusetts is doing particularly well either. Which is where the NBA Hall of Fame is, isn't it? Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the NBA Hall of Fame. No. So, Adi, more on on Fenway. I, I threw a picture up here uh, comparing old Yankee Stadium with Fenway, which is you know old Fenway is the same as new Fenway. What was your? You go to Yankee Stadium a lot. Of course, it's new Yankee Stadium. New Yankee but, Stadium is. But bad. to sit in there as an adult, having been in a lot of baseball stadiums, a lot of time in Yankee Stadium, and to look at the Green Monster out there in the very short left field. I mean, what was your experience of the park? I mean, dramatically changes the game, right? Look at how different these parks are up here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's first of all. Because because of the just to, for our listeners, uh, Green Monster is very very short in left field, and so to, to sort of compensate for that, only although not that much, they have a very large wall, which is now of course plastered with advertising. So the, in yesteryear there was just it was an actual green wall. And Actually, if you look at photos, <laughs> it was plastered. It's been plastered with advertising for most of its. Well, uh, I can history. tell you that, that I, right? you look you look at it like photos of like ballparks back in the 30s. Oh yes, you, they did. You think it was advertising heavy now? Oh my goodness! <laughs> but, but of course, yeah. my iconic. View what, of would, the wall. what was NASCAR yeah. like in the 30s? <laughs> <laughs> My iconic view of, of the Green Monster is, of course, when Bucky Dent had a home run there in 1977, and there was a green wall with no advertising. Yeah. But now it has beautiful, you know, they're 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 tasteful, but it's it's loaded with advertising. But you can't. It's it's an odd ballpark because to right field it's incredibly deep, so the foul line is actually really 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 shallow, or under 300 feet, but it essentially goes straight back. So it's it's extraordinarily far right. in right. right field, which of course where Ted Williams hit. So it was so to be clear, left left field line's three fifteen, right field line's three eighty. It's three eighty, but it doesn't arc in, out in left field. It right. stays very shallow. So even in the the power alley, it's about three hundred and fifty feet, which okay. is which is you know high school baseball diamond okay. Okay. Um, size. So that big monster is supposed to compensate for that. But the, of course, the trajectory of a baseball, it, it's not hard. They hit it mm-hmm. over it. 
And yeah. so that's why, you know, little guys can do it. Um, Martinez hit a pair of home runs. In Not such a little guy, by the way. <laughs> he just knocked the crap out of those balls uh, in, in sort of left center. But a 380 in left center is pretty, qu- is yeah. pretty close. All right, good fun. Glad somebody got out to a real baseball game lately. Good stuff, Adi. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Three of the four Wharton Moneyball co-hosts in this morning, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, and Cade Massey. Eric Bradlow is going to wander in here eventually. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join us anytime you'd like. Phone call 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at com. Or hit us up on Moneyball. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyball. At WMoneyball is our handle there on Twitter. We are rolling into the second quarter of the show, and as usual, we have a guest coming up this half hour. We are delighted to welcome to the show Brandel Chambly. You may know Brandel from his time playing on the PGA or more recently as an analyst for Golf Channel. He is on site this week at Beth Page Black, where they're playing the PGA Championship beginning tomorrow. And he'll be covering that after live tournament play every day, Thursday through Sunday. Brando, welcome, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I am sitting right here in Beth Page, and I'm happy to say there's a strange object up in the sky, a big morning <laughs> ball. I don't know what the hell that is. We're seeing it too. Uh, no, it's it's like, pretty unusual. Everyone's confused down here. Very confused. I, well, it I've been here twice. This is the first time I think I've seen the sun. In the two weeks I've ever been here, is that right? Wow! What's the? I have not looked at the forecast for the weekend. How's it shaping up? Uh, I think tomorrow's supposed to be all right. Uh, for the most part, it's it's supposed to be pretty solid. I mean, there's a chance of rain, and it's going to be a bit blustery. But uh, for the most part, I think uh, the rest of the week's going to be all right. When when you, when you know around my yard, if it rains like it's rained the last few days, it's going to be soggy for a while. How well does that golf course drain? How differently, or how differently do you think the course is going to play because of the weather? Well, I believe uh, I think I heard last night it rained 26 of the last 30 days. A lot of that. Heard players come into the media center and say that the golf course was much firmer than they expected it to be. Not that it's firm. But it was much firmer than they expected it to be. So by all accounts, it drains pretty well. So it should be in decent shape, but it's going to be softer than the PGA committee would like it, I'm sure. Right. Well, Brando, can you tell us a little bit from your perspective, and and some of our listeners don't know the history, but what's special about Bethpage Black? Why is it such a different course than we usually see for major championships? Well, I think amongst uh, the most revered architects, uh, it's Tilling has as the respect of golf course architects and geeks uh and that's um it's warranted uh, his golf courses are interesting uh, the bunkering is beautiful it's aesthetic every shot provides a great challenge the greens have their own nuance to them so uh highly respected amongst golf course architect aficionados and mm-hmm. uh 
amongst the players. Uh, it, it piques their interest. Uh, primarily, uh, Tillinghast was known for a lot of things, but but having meaty and interesting par threes mm. was, uh, I think, at the forefront of uh, of his philosophy. So you'll see that this week. What what makes an interesting par three? When I, I have a buddy who just happened to play Augusta yesterday, and the first hole he wants to report back to me is twelve, and that's you know almost the iconic three. Of course, they've got sixteen there as well, and we've got what is it at at, at on Pebble Beach seventeen? You got some of these iconic ones in your head, yeah. but what that's that's kind of too yeah. extreme. When you talk about nice par threes that Tillinghouse is famous for, what makes them that way? Well, just to go back to number 12 at Augusta National, Tillinghast didn't design that golf course. Uh, Alistair McKenzie and Bobby Jones did. But what's interesting about that hole is it's a short hole. So you're only hitting a short iron, obviously. But the green sits diagonally at you. So you you, you have to be very mm-hmm. precise with whatever line you take. You just cannot take a club and think you're done for the whole green. You have to have a specific club for the left if you're going at the left pin at the middle pin, and at the right pin. Mm-hmm. And the thing that is very interesting about it is that you're typically taking, a, obviously, a shorter golf swing with a short iron. Under pressure, you're much more likely to get quick and cut that swing off and get out in front of it, which means you're going to hit a high shot to the right, which is going to go shorter. If you do that at Augusta National on 12, pivotal part of the golf course, it's going to catch the bank. It's going to go into water. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a... It's a mind-blowing concept. Uh, you know, it'll, right. it'll make an atheist uh, be devoted to prayer. Uh, you know, you need to look at the par 317th here at uh, at Bethpage, and it's 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 much longer than number 12. But again, it sets at almost the exact opposite angle from right to left. And the longer you go to the left, the more the green is sloped away from you. So you're trying to hit this much longer shot in, but you have to have trajectory to it. You just can't pull an iron out. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got the right iron, hit it solid. You have to do something extra. Mm-hmm. You have to hit that long iron straight up in the air, and you have to work it against whatever wind there is. And you have to have the right shot shape and the right spin on it just to get it on the green. So mm-hmm. all of those things challenge the best players in the world and pique their interest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Brando, while we got you, there's a zillion things we could talk about, and these guys might get mad at me for asking this question, but we were just talking about 12 at Augusta and the mind game it is. Um, you, We all saw Jordan Spieth a few years ago have kind of a meltdown there. He was leading big. He was going to win back-to-backs, and it kind of feels like he hadn't been the same since. Can can you give us some sense of your analysis of Jordan Spieth's game, and, and is it possible that a single hole can? And we, I would, he's not broken as a player, but can we, can a single hole what, affect a player that much? You know what was interesting about that week was he was leading. He called his coach in Saturday night for an emergency golf lesson. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden there was this hyper attention drawn to the the technical aspects of his game. So you know I think you could make the argument that may, he may well have lost. Masters that year by making a phone call mm-hmm. to call in, you know, an emergency lesson. Uh, I think as, as the years have gone on, Jordan Spieth has, whether he knows it or not, his golf swing has changed. I mean, I'm sure he does. He's got his coach right there beside him. But he used to have a very peculiar, well, a very beautiful look to the top of his golf swing. The club hung nicely. He had a nice cup in his left wrist, which. I think suited his golf swing perfect. That's how he played his best golf. Mm-hmm. He now has a bowed left wrist, and the club doesn't hang straight down; it hangs to the left, known as laid off. So, look, where did he play his best golf from? Not where he's at right now. He's mm-hmm. he's, he's sort of ranked near the bottom of the driving accuracy statistics. He has a chance to win the career grand slam this week. 
and nobody would bet a dollar on him. Wow. You know, other than for the novelty of saying they did it. But right. you wouldn't bet thinking that you had any chance of winning on him this week. But one of the things you're saying, I think, is that he was he, he – was, well, I don't know if you're saying this or not, but there was some developing psychology or concerns about a swing prior to that day. And <clears> so maybe we're overreacting to that one moment? Well – no, I don't think so. I mean, his ball striking was beautiful. Uh, his ball striking has deteriorated the longer he's been on the tour. <clears throat> when he came out, he was one of the better drivers on the tour. He proved to be the best iron player on the tour. Uh, he gets lauded for making a lot of long putts, but <clears throat> he was a better iron player uh, than he ever was a better putter. And that's where you separate yourself on the PGA Tour. You separate yourself with great approach shots. Great approach shots give you better putts, easier putts. Uh, that there's no real mystery to how the best players separate themselves, and they do it with great approach shots. So, Brandon, we're using Spieth as just an example here, but we're talking about something that all professional golfers grapple with. And, you know, you might play professional golf for 30 years these days on the PGA Tour, and you're going to go through these peaks and valleys. What does a player like Spieth? And we're just using him as an example here. We can come up with others. What what do they do to change that game? The guy's still young. He's still got incredible talent. We just saw what Tiger came back, you know, most – impressive golf comeback in the history of the game. How can a guy like that turn his game around when he needs to so clearly? Well, the greatest enemy to great golf is thinking that you can make changes and become better. Uh, All things being equal, experience is going to make you a better player. You're going to think better. You're going to know more. You can draw on those past experiences. there's a lot of wholesale changes going on in the golf industry because, well, we have access to all of this information and teachers are everywhere and players can afford to have their teachers out. And when you've paid the expense of somebody to be there, they have to validate their worth by suggesting changes. Players adopt these changes uh, wholesale and, and they do so at their peril. More times than not, when someone decides to go with you know, change to another coach, there's an initial uptick. You know, you can you can say it's they've got them on the right track, but I think it's it's more likely that it's the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. It's regression to the mean, I think we call it. After a year or two, most players are worse off for those changes. Wow. So uh, I think there's a there's sort of a you know there's a way to play this game, and it's with a sort of a competent ignorance. <laughs> and most players are trading their competent ignorance for a incompetent um, uh, comp- or an, an ignorant competent. Right. That's fascinating. You know I mean? I mean, That's fascinating. They're, 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 they're competent. They know more about their golf swing. But they're not playing with the freedom or the flow of athleticism that, that they played their best at. Okay. So, uh, so there's always a blend. I mean, you know, you, you, you want to change to get better. Everybody wants to get better. But it comes with a lot of risk. And very few do it uh, and come out the other side better off for it. So, Brandel, this is Eric Bradlow. First, I want to thank you. Um, it, may, it will mean nothing to you, but you were on the Golf Channel maybe a couple of weeks ago. I tweeted something that you said on the air, and 
tagged you on it, and I got more retweets. By the way, you responded to me, which I appreciated, and then I got more retweets, likes, mentions, and Twitter followers just from your commenting on my tweet about you. So first of all, thank you for that. First of all, thank you. You would not want to read my Twitter feed. Well, either way, uh, I agree. You were actually talking about the role of analytics in golf and how important it was, and that's why I brought it up as part of Wharton Moneyball. But I want to ask you a question about, and Cade was referring to this, about how much variability there is. So if you look, for example, at the betting odds right now for the PGA, we talk about this all the time on Wharton Moneyball. Let's say there's 130, 140 players playing the PGA. It only takes seven players right now to get the betting odds where, in some sense, you'd have to take those seven players for 50% of the odds and everybody else. So here are the seven. Tiger Woods, Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka, Ricky Fowler, John Rahm, and Justin Rose. If I gave you those seven versus the field, because of what you know about the inherent variability of golf, would you take those seven or would you take the field? Well, I would take another seven. <laughs> but the question is, <laughs> that's, that's a strong that's answer. A yeah. right answer. So I, I think your answer is no to that question <laughs> yeah. than this one. I, I would do my own research before I would accept betting odds. Okay. Uh, although, look, I, 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 you know, the people who. And the wonderful thing about betting coming to sport is that it does bring great analytics to the game. It brings the sharpest minds to the game because a lot of money's at stake. So I'm all in, and I love it. And I love these deep dives, and I love the safer metrics coming to golf. I, I eat them up. I'm on it. But this particular week, uh, it is it is going to be more about accuracy than a typical tour event, than even a typical major, because the typical majors have sort of swung to the um, let them let them recover mentality mm. which is popular at Augusta National mm-hmm. it's so popular at Augusta National that the USGA pretty much adopted it for their course setups and then of course the open championship well it depends on the venue but for the most part um, Houdini like recoveries are wonderful mm-hmm. but the good old draconian setups of major championships which used to be U.S. Open and most PGAs mm-hmm. have gone out the window. This week, it will be more about who drives it in the fairway, which upsets the apple cart to some extent mm-hmm. because very few of the metrics that most people look at have to do with anything, have little to do with accuracy off the tee. Mm-hmm. That's why I use old school metrics this week, and they have been very relevant at the events that have been played here. Actually, Brendel, it is what I tweeted about that you said on the show, which is we both, you actually referred to some research by Mark Brody, who's been on this show many times. You know, yeah. there's the old fake adage, which Mark has proven, you know, drive for show, putt for dough. It turns out that's not yeah. true. And not it turns true. out he was pointing out that actually driving accuracy is much more important than people have by this lore. So that's exactly what I tweeted about what you commented on on the PGA. And, and sounds like this weekend it'll be that kind of effect will be even more exacerbated. Brandon, who are... That's right. I mean, we, we talk often about, you know, this player's a great driver, this player's a great driver, and we'll say he's first in strokes gain off the tee, second strokes gain off the tee. Well, that metric is a relative metric, and typically they are much longer than they are straight if they're leading strokes gain off of the tee. Right. Typically, they average about 58% of the fairways. The winner this week will average over 70% of the fairways would be my bet. Wow. Now, for a, a guy who averages 58% of the fairways, to average over 70% of the fairways, he's going to have to hit two more fairways a day, eight more fairways for the week. Now, Tiger won here in 2002, and he hit 41 fairways. 
Lucas Glover won here in 2009. He hit 40 fairways. Now, what's what's interesting about that is they both came in here very high ranked. Lucas Glover, Lucas Glover was first in total driving. That statistic ranks driving accuracy and driving distance equally. Mm-hmm. Tiger Woods was seventh in total driving when he came in here in 2002. And you know what he finished? Seventh in driving accuracy, mm-hmm. seventh in driving distance. Mm-hmm. And he won. Driving accuracy will matter this week because the greens are so elevated for a lot of the shots. The holes are so long, and the rough is going to be so penal. penal. So you have to look, in my opinion, you have to look at driving accuracy much closer than you otherwise would. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking to Brandel Chambly. Brandel is a golf analyst for the Golf Channel after having a career as a PGA golfer. He's at Beth Page Black this week readying for the PGA Championship, which begins tomorrow. You just mentioned Tiger in 02. Well, Tiger's still relevant in 17. What part of the Tiger story do you think people are missing? What do you find interesting as an analyst and as a close-up follower of golf? Well, I think most people, People look at his comeback from the physical injury as the more unlikely part of the comeback. And while that is amazing, there's lots of people who've had physical impairments. You know, I think Tiger was referencing Peyton Manning yesterday in the media center. But imagine if Peyton Manning, who came back from a fused net to play unbelievable football, but imagine if Peyton Manning on a quick out throwing to his receiver would miss that receiver by 30 yards to the right. Mm. Okay. Imagine if he had a series of downs or games where he couldn't get within 10 yards of his receiver on a throw. In other Mm. words, he had whatever you want to call them, the flinches, the yips. He literally could not throw the ball anywhere near his receiver. Now, now you tell me the psychological, the emotional, impairment that that would cause to an athlete Mm -hmm. and then to be able to overcome that and then have Peyton Manning come back and throw the ball more accurately than not only that he ever had but that anybody in the game was throwing the ball and that's exactly what Tiger Woods did Tiger Woods I challenge anybody to find video of anybody ever chipping worse than Tiger Woods was oh really you can't find it I've looked you won't it was the worst chipping exhibition ever. Oh, my God. Ever. Okay? If you don't want to say it was the yips, which maybe it wasn't, then it was the worst technique ever displayed by professional golfer chipping. Wow. And he came back last year and chipped better than he's ever chipped in his career and was the very best chipper on the PGA Tour. They have a statistic. Uh, proximity to the hole chipping is basically what it is. Mm-hmm. How close do you finish to the hole after every single chip shot for the year? Mm-hmm. He led that statistic last year. He'd have been dead last by miles a few <laughs> years ago. All right. So, so to see him, when you have the chipping yips, it, it's like holding a hand grenade with the pin pulled out. That's that's what it's right, like. Right. It's, you have to chisel through a wall of doubt before every single chip shot. Mm-hmm. And he managed to overcome that. Far more unlikely than over, overcoming the physical ailment that mm-hmm. he had. Mm-hmm. So, Far um, more unlikely than playing good golf at 43. Wow. The chipping yips has proved to be a death sentence in the game. Wow. So uh, this it's is Adi Weiner. I have a question. So you seem to be uh, emphasizing not only the physical comeback, but also the mental comeback. Mental. And it's, it's astonishing to me. So when, when you say that Tiger Woods was... Uh, 
sort of lost his ability to chip. Are you attributing almost all of that to mental collapse? So he didn't really rebuild his 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 skill. He just sort of got together. Like, did, has his technique substantially changed with regards to chipping in the last couple of years, or is it most? The biggest mystery in the game is how he did it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> Was it, and again, the biggest mystery in the game is what causes it. I mean, right. uh, the Mayo Clinic did a big study on it, and and really nobody can really get their arms around where it comes from, how you how you acquire it. Is it technical? Is it mental? Tiger would argue that it was not the yips. And look, there's there's that's vitalizing to an athlete, no question about it. That it was purely technical. Mm-hmm. Okay, if that's the case, I've never seen anybody overcome what he had to to unweave the rainbow right to and then to put it back together to figure out what the technical problems were and then not only become proficient at those technical problems overcoming them but to erase the scar tissue so for him to do all that at 43 with all the distractions right. with the physical impairments that's why I call this the greatest comeback in the history of golf. That's great. And that gives us a different part of his game to keep an eye on this weekend. Tell us, Brandel, here in the last couple of minutes before we have to go to break, you, how will you watch the tournament differently this weekend than you think an average you know, golf viewer will watch it? And is there any. <laughs> well, is there, they get to enjoy it. <laughs> it's not like I don't enjoy it. But well, I chart every single shot that's hit on TV. Really? You know, where they're from, how far they hit it. Uh, how close they hit it, and then as I chart every single shot, when they go to commercial break, then I sort of aggregate all those shots, and then I look for any trend. I look for how a player is playing above or below his typical statistics, Mm -hmm. and then try to extrapolate into what that means with the future holes, future situations. It's like I'm, you know, from the minute the sun comes up till it goes down till I finish talking on the air, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm grinding and I've got yellow legal pads surrounding me, writing mm-hmm. all this stuff down. So mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty intent. When yeah, I'm that's that's golf. different. That's it's been a long time since I cracked a beer and watched the golf. Oh, that's a shame, Brandon. We got to get you. We got to get you off studio one of these days. Uh, is there a player that you're especially interested to keep an eye on this week? You know, when you talk about who's the favorites here, everybody's got the same favorites for the most part. You know, I, I, you know, I probably since Justin Thomas withdrew, it's unfortunate because I certainly valued him a lot. I've sort of moved Ricky Fowler in the top five. There's people that would argue that he shouldn't be, but he'd be in my top five. I, I, I tend to look more at sleepers who I would look outside the top ten of the world rankings than long shots. You know, long shots to me are players that just nobody's talking about. Believe it or not, I'd put Lucas Glover, who won here in 2009, All right. as a long shot mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. I mean, he has really found his game. Only one person on the PGA Tour makes fewer bogeys than him, and that's Dustin Johnson. All right. He's got one of the best scoring averages. He's one of the top 20 in strokes gained total. He's, he's the only one player on the PGA Tour is better than him out of the rough. I mean, a lot of reasons. So I, I'm more interested in picking long shots and sleepers because – there's any more. There's so many smart people interested in the game of golf talking about it. You're not going to surprise anybody with your favorite. That makes sense. Brandon, we, Brandon, we got to let you go. Justin Glover's his long shot. Brandon Chambly, fantastic talking to you. Wish you the best with the golf this weekend. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you all. Thanks again. Absolutely. Pick him up on the Golf Channel. That is half of our show. Still, I have to go. Come back after the break. You're listening.
listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Kate Massey this morning hosting with Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. Eric Bradlow made an appearance. He will appear again. Trust me, Audie, he's going to come back. He will. You guys can make an appearance by phone if you'd like. 1-844-WARDEN, 1-844-942-7866. Or hit us up on email, businessradio at crsxm.com. Or catch us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there on Twitter. Good way to reach out to us. We are just off the phone with Brandel Chambly. Brandel's a Golf Channel analyst. You can follow Brandel on Twitter. He's a he's a good follow on Twitter. His handle at Chambly Brandel. He's also going to be in studio for Golf Channel. You can pick up their coverage after each round, immediately following live tournament play Thursday through Sunday. Golf Channel is going to be the place to find out what's going on at Beth Page Black and. Brandon will be up there talking about it. Fantastic conversation with him, right? Yeah, that was, was really interesting. We, we need to do more because uh, he strikes me as a guy who appreciates analytics but also thinks it can be taken too far and people are getting it well, wrong. I, I, yeah, I thought it was really interesting to hear him talk about um, kind of, you know, that the players probably overcompensate in terms of changes and stuff like that as, as their career evolves. But yeah, the one, quite the one issue that I, you know, I guess we didn't get a chance to touch on is the amount of changes that are kind of necessary just because, you know, bodies change as you get older. You do have to kind of update things change change your technique change your swing as as, as you know, I do every you know, day right? right yeah our bodies aren't constant so but, i feel like that's that's, that's got to be a lot of the motivation for these beyond just kind of coaches trying to like you know earn their keep but that's got to be a lot of the motivation for these but kind I, I was of changes taken, through your career taken by his his uh, image of him scrawling on yellow pad during the actual tournaments to create kind of live statistical yeah. results yeah. of how well you're doing uh, based on 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 uh, the accuracy and the, and the length of your shots, and I'm imagining that we can't be far away from a world where that's all done automatically. Yeah, it, I suspect, and maybe Golf Channel's just not quite there yet, but they will be there. So his legal pad, like everybody, the legal Everybody's pad days got are a limited. Yeah. yeah. So his long shot, by the way, is Lucas Glover. I think I, I as I was trying to get out of this this segment so quickly that at the end of the last half hour, I said Justin Glover. Lucas Glover was. Uh, long shot and he's not saying he's going to win the thing but of the guys who have longer shots that's one that Brandel's going to keep an eye on rolling into the next segment now we are delighted to have back to the show jay jaffe jay is a senior writer at fangraphs fangraphs is one of the great analytics shops for um, baseball formerly sports illustrated he's the creator of jaws by the way which is a way of looking at who's should be or who will be in the hall of fame baseball hall of fame he and he's the author of the cooperstown Casebook. You can follow Jay on Twitter. We've been talking about Twitter a lot. Jay's a great follow up there at J underscore Jaffe. Jaffe's J A F F E. And we are delighted to talk to Jay again. Jay, good morning. Hey, good morning. Where are you calling in from this morning, Jay? Uh, I'm in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, where all the writers seem to live these days. All the, all the cool kids. All the cool kids are in Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope you're sitting in a cafe with a beer. Eleven years. So uh, you, you were you're I'm saying that for me. You're no. saying you were early. You were ahead of the no, crowd. Eleven years. Brooklyn was pretty hip by eleven years ago. <laughs> exactly. So Jay, um, tell us what's going on in your life these days. I, we got a lot to talk about, but everybody's kind of up in arms a moment ago about the Chris Sale outing last night. On the one hand. 
it sounds like pretty incredible pitching. He had something like 17 strikeouts through seven innings. But then they pulled him, and Adi has feelings about this. I have strong this. words about this. I, I have I, My feelings is that, that above all, sports is entertainment, really above all. And uh, as we use it as a great example, as a teaching tool, and it's great for statistics and prediction and stuff like that. But it's fun to watch. And 17 strikeouts in seven innings is just a remarkable So to occurrence. be clear, there are only 21 outs in seven only, innings. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's, 17 it's, out of 21 insane. outs. And yes, he had 108 pitches, but come on, let what, the what, guy pitch a you, little you, more. You, you, would, no, you would have him no, pitch his arm no, off? No, no, no. Well, he was no, asking no, for no, it. No, oh, come no, on, here no. we go again. So this is you're going to tell me why you don't enjoy a baseball game? Uh, so, hey, no, but, not at all. I, look, I, I would, I would love to see Chris Sale go for go for a strikeout record in a single game. So However, did Chris Sale. We're talking, we're talking about a guy whose availability uh, over the last uh, year. And effectiveness over the last year has been limited by a shoulder injury. You just don't push it that far for a game in mid-May. It's you know this is this is not um, you know pursuit of individual records does not take a back seat to availability in October. Um, you know and and there's uh, I think right now it, you know it, it's great that Chris Sale is finding a groove. His last four starts, uh, maybe five starts, he's he's. Uh, uh, racked up a ton of strikeouts and 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 limited the home runs and, and seems to be you know turning back into the pitcher that we've seen uh, challenge for Cy Young awards in the last several years. But um, you know I I think you you only push him so far and right now you know 110 pitches give or take is, is is about where where the Red Sox are comfortable. I don't think there's any reason to push him to 120 uh, you know or 130 in in pursuit of a record. Is you know you've got. Um, you know, if you're gonna go, if you're gonna get strikeouts, that means a lot of deep counts, and and uh, it's just this just is not a uh, uh, good enough reason to push him, uh, especially given where he's been. So, are you? Yeah, I mean, how, how, well, hold on, I just want to follow this up. How clear are you that this is 110 is like his limit? I mean, where does that come I, from? Is I, that data? I'm, I'm not, but I I'm not, but I but I am clear about the about the fact that he is, uh, you know, had a lot of health problems recently. You know, and and to me, you know, if he's throwing well, that's great, but at some point you just you know you just back off and 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 uh, uh you know he it's it's not like he was pitching a no hitter he'd given up runs um you know in, including uh um you know two in the seventh that tells me you know that tells me that uh, um you know that, that he was probably flagging i haven't looked at the velocity tables or anything like that but you know he was starting to get hit i'm sure that the red sox probably uh were keeping a, a very close eye on his mechanics maybe they were deteriorating i you know i trust them to figure out um, okay, as, as know, neutral when, when you know when when it's time to take Chris Sale out. As neutral observer, I'm going to give points to Jaffe on this one. I'm a Jaffe. All right. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think as a Red Sox fan, you know, I mean, Audie brought up the entertainment value. It would be it would be it would be entertaining value. to watch him go for 20 strikeouts, but. I also want to be entertained in late September games by having him pitch, not Hector Velasquez well, or my, something like that, yes, right? My view is that I think we, we over, overstate the strength of knowledge about these things and that maybe another inning would have been another maybe, maybe 15, 20 pitches. It could have been more if he was... Uh, it's the, listen, the technical argument is there. I don't have any cards in that. In that and, and, and I can't win that argument. It's, it's a loser. What I'm talking about is the value of, if you look back 
back, and I've been watching baseball my whole life. If you look back, the things that I remember most and the most exciting things are the are records of this type. And I think we undervalue how much so, how important they are so isn't to the game. Some, isn't there some story about somebody, maybe even a Red Sox pitcher, who was left in to pursue something and then blew some out his arm? Story. <laughs> Hold on, I'm trying. Well, well, blew out his arm. He blew out a game. I mean, I think you're talking That's about true. Pedro Martinez in the playoffs. I thought somebody got hurt too. No, there's he didn't a, get hurt. Just, he just got hurt. You know, okay. m- emotionally. <laughs> no, but, 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 but you, know, you know, Pedro Martinez. I mean, uh, yeah, that, that lost the game, but he did, and he did go on to have uh, significant arm problems later on. I don't think he didn't necessarily put it on one game. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I think the, what I like, and you know, I I was watching Hyunjin Ryu uh, on Sunday chase a no hitter, and and he went to a career high pitch count. He did. Um, you know, uh, uh, didn't give up a hit till uh, one out in the seventh inning, and you know, Dave Roberts, who has actually pulled three pitchers uh, with no hitters in progress in his. Uh, tenure as manager, which started in 2016, that's tied for the highest in Major League Baseball. Wow. Uh, was 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 letting him go because he was, uh, you know, he had he had pitched uh, uh, rather efficiently. Um, you know, he was he was willing to push that envelope a little bit because Ryu has just been so dominant. His mechanics are so clean. His ability to repeat his delivery, um, you know, has been has has been. You know, so clear that he was willing to go uh, at least another inning with it. But you know, when when Ryu gave up the hit, uh, when they expanded the lead, uh, you know, it was it was time to take him out. He let him finish the eighth inning, uh, and he finished strong. But uh, um, you know, at that point, uh, the Dodgers decided uh, uh, you know enough was enough. But it was really, you know that was really exciting watching him chase the no hitter, um, especially because that was a game I'd had on since. Uh, uh, since first pitch, just kind of in the background doing uh, uh, some cooking for Mother's Day, so I was pretty wrapped up in it. So you, fun. you do admit that it is exciting to watch a no hitter. <laughs> and uh, what I'm what I'm kind of just sort of ranting on is I think that there's been so much of an over emphasis on the whole entirety of the season, which does make sense from the managerial perspective. But from the point of view as a fan and in the excitement, there's the teams, so much. The teams aren't value. taking the fans into no, account they're, enough they're, they're when, they, when they not, try and win baseball not. games. I, I, I don't know. It's some some of my colleagues go for. Full, full tilt, I don't know, Neanderthal fan <laughs> sometimes. It's so interesting to see. Listen, while we're talking about pitchers and, and even Southern California pitchers, what's going on with Chris Paddock? There's a lot of noise about this rookie. He's from Austin, Texas, which makes me happy. He's an eighth-round draft pick, but he's like the hottest thing going. How often does that happen? What is the story? And apparently there's a certain thing about getting ahead of the hitters here that analysts yeah, are kind of excited there's, about. There's a, there's a few things going on. This is a guy who kind of slipped, slipped through the cracks as far as uh, – uh, his, his uh, you know, the, the hype meter for prospects. Um, he was overage when he drafted. I think he was like 19 and a half by the time he was drafted. I'm not sure what the story is if he was held back in school or 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 or, uh, or, or what. But uh, uh, and then he had Tommy John surgery, which knocked him out of action for 21 months. Uh, was traded from the Marlins to the Padres. Uh, and really didn't get on pro- on the on the major prospect list until the middle of last season. Just incredible strikeout walk ratios ar- along the way. Um, the Padres, uh, you know, as they did with Fernando Tatis, they they threw the service time considerations out the window. They brought him up uh, to start the year. His first wow. seven starts, he'd allowed a total of two home runs uh, and uh, put up some some uh, some great strikeout and walk numbers. I just wrote about him last night. He got touched up by the Dodgers a bit. It was really his first uh, uh, first rough outing. They hit him for two home runs, and I think five runs, although only two of them were earned runs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two things that stand out about him uh, even before you get to the stuff, and one is that he's one of the quickest workers in the major leagues mm. in terms of uh, uh, 
seconds per pitch. It's like 21.3. Uh, okay. The other is that he gets ahead of the count uh, more often than any other pitcher, uh, 75% of the time. Literally uh, number one in MLB? Yeah, number one among starters in MLB as, wow. as of when I wrote that article last week, and I think it was a significant margin. But so he's he's getting he's getting strike one quickly, and he's back at you uh, for the next pitch very quickly. And and you know I think I called it I called the piece Chris Chris Paddock's relentless attack. You know he's got this cockiness, this you know uh, uh, self assuredness on the mound that really radiates, and, and just like it, it just he's all business out there. So Jay, Jay, hold on for a second, and, and we we have a we have an audience that's not always uh, that, you know, they're not all baseball guys. So talk to us a little bit about what it takes and why some pitchers are more inclined to get ahead than others. It's not just a control thing. Like, I would like to know, Greg Maddox, one of the most accurate pitchers of all time, where would he fall just from a purely control perspective versus well, a choice to be aggressive? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a choice to be aggressive. And Paddock has, you know, has has strong stuff. He's got a mid-90s fastball. Uh, and then he's got this incredible changeup, um, and he's able to sell both, you know, sell it, but with, with this, you know, with a similar delivery, um, although you know, and, and ten miles an hour separation, um, you know, it's it's just he's just got you know outstanding stuff at least for those two pitches. His third pitch, a curveball, is is you know really kind of a waste pitch. He, he uh, throws it early in counts. He never uses it as an out pitch. You know, it helps to change the batter's eye level and kind of break up the rhythm, but uh, uh, it's not a very effective pitch yet. He's he's got below average spin, um, but you know he's he's just he's always in attack mode, and and you know he's got the stuff to do it. When you you know when you can do what he does, uh, you can be more aggressive. And you know uh, Maddox, I think uh, uh, Maddox didn't have his velocity uh, even relative you know relative to the time. Maddox was you know Maddox was. Uh, uh, had uh, even better command though. Maddox had you know command almost second to none, mm-hmm. but uh, um, and a very a very good understanding of what we call effective velocity in terms of you know how a pitch looks faster depending on where you place it. Um, mm. yeah, Paddock, I, there's you know I think what I see in Paddock is a guy who who really has shows signs of uh, uh, you know becoming an ace. Uh, which is very exciting when you're talking about a 23-year-old pitcher. Um, but, you know, he's not a finished product yet, and, and, and we'll see how that develops. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Maddox is the comp I'd put on him, but, uh, um, you know, that's uh, um, you know, so what is it about the, the, a lot the, of models for being a great pitcher? Jay, is the, the, the analysts like this thing about being getting ahead of the count? So that's something that the data say. If you're a pitcher who can get ahead of the count, that's a, that's hugely advantageous, right? Because yeah, it, it is. Although, although to be honest, I would say strike one is maybe a little bit overrated. Um, it's really the one-one pitch where you swing from from going uh, one and two or two and one that that I think has the, has the greater spread in in terms of results than strike one. But there's no question that getting strike one, uh, you know, is a big deal. It sets up the rest of the at bat. Um, you know, it allows you to, you know, it allows you to, to, uh, uh, you know, to go outside the zone, try to get the hitter to chase. Um, you know, you you can be more aggressive once you've got strike one. And why is it that more pitchers aren't more aggressive? Like, what's the downside of that aggressive approach? Well, you know, hitters you know, are aggressive I mean, too. <laughs> not all pitchers have not all pitchers have have great command, and and if you you know if you. If you miss, you know, if you miss strike one and you're behind in the count, then you've got to try something different. You, you know, you're more likely to wind up with a pitch in the zone, uh, and you know, pitches in the zone are more hittable than than pitches out of the zone. You, know, you want to, you want to be just 
just catch it. You know, you want to throw strikes that look like balls and balls that look like strikes. Right. Um, and you want to live on the fringes of the zone. And, you know, when you're behind in the count, you can't nibble as, as much. Got it. Um, that's that. That's the basic. That that's you know you have you have to you have to get more of the zone uh, when you're behind in the count if you're if you're going to get back in it. Jay, this is a uh, Shane. Um, you're talking a lot about the kind of advantages of aggressiveness within a particular at bat. Have people looked at kind of the sort of secondary advantage of aggressiveness in terms of presumably you are, you can if you're kind of getting ahead in the count more often you can actually expend less pitches per game so you can last longer in a game. And we all, you know, we were talking previously with the sale example of the, you know, how, you know, baseball managers are being more aggressive about pulling pitchers out. You know, have have people looked at kind of like aggressiveness, getting ahead in the count in individual at-bats as kind of a predictor of lasting longer in a game, getting through more batters? I haven't seen anything directly studying it and you know we're in we're in a time where pitch counts are you know are i mean pitch you know pitches per bat are on the rise because strikeout rates are on the rise um and and we're seeing fewer balls in play we don't have uh, you know a lot of pitchers who are you know uh getting ahead in the counts and then and then you know throwing balls that uh, uh that are designed to be hit weekly um it's it's you know, it's this attack. It's this going deep in counts, and it's batters also. You know, wait. You know, waiting out at bats, hoping that uh, you know if they see five pitches, they're going to get one. Uh, that you know, that, that that's a mistake, and then they they can make solid contact with, uh, uh, preferably in the air. So this is a new, this seems to be like the new approach. Obviously, the hitters are going for homers, so they so they wait to see the ball that they can do something with, which means more strikeouts and more walks as well. Um, yeah. What what really is interests me a little bit is when you see the contrast between these young twenty three year olds who were trained to throw ninety four, ninety five, ninety six. I mean, like nothing. I mean, if you just think back what it used to be, that was extraordinary speed. Now it just seems to be average. For I think ninety three actually is the average. So ninety six is, is is good, but you see it all all the time. And then you see a guy like Sabathia step up, who's throwing in the mid-80s. or these. Well, he's actually, I think he's hit 90 this season. Or these yeah. kind of old guys or slower pitchers, yet they seem to manage it all with their command. How do they do it? I mean, what is it? What is it? Obviously, accuracy means a ton. What, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's command. It's, it, you know, it's also the fact that lefty can get away with a little bit less velocity just because of the, the, the various angles and things like that. But it really does come down to command. I mean, if you could throw the fastball to all four quadrants at will. Um, you know, you're you're uh, um, you can get away with a with a bit less velocity and and uh, uh, but you know really velocity. The, Velocity. It's, it's. This is. You know. The evolution is such that pitchers are being selected for velocity with the scouting, and and we've also figured out. Um, you know. That the the trend is is for pitchers to be to be working shorter. This. Uh, you know. This this um, statistical. Uh, finding that uh, you know that that uh, pitchers uh, almost universally you know their performance deteriorates when they're going through the batting order the third time, let alone the fourth time, uh, has led to fewer innings from starters and 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 more innings from relievers. Pitchers also have uh, in the first in the first plate appearance a pitcher has the advantage, and so we're seeing you know a a greater inventory of pitchers. Throwing one inning and therefore being able to throw closer to maximum effort, um, and you know gaining even more of an advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also, <clears throat> uh, you know, when you're th- when you've only got one 
one plate appearance, you generally uh, can get away with having only you know two, maybe two quality pitches as opposed to three, which is really what it takes to be a starter. You got to mix up three pitches. Mm-hmm. If you're going to face a guy three times in a game, but we're seeing less and less of that. And you know, it's it, it all makes sense, and it's all. Um, you know, a, a lot of this has been driven by analytics as well as off. You know, the the, the observations that, that that come with it. It just you can't do it just in a in a va- in a vacuum full of spreadsheets. Um, but it's you know, it's driven the game to a, uh, a cul-de-sac that's difficult to navigate because we've got what's suddenly a very static game. Uh, with fewer and fewer balls in play, more and more swings and misses, more and more runs scored just via home run, and you know people are complaining about uh, mm-hmm. about uh, the lesser entertainment value, and and uh, the league is, yeah. is 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 rightly concerned about that. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how we get out of that, other than you know seeing the the. Uh, uh, the scales tilt a little bit to favor, um, you know, to favor more action and more balls in play and 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 more speed and and you know it's uh, uh, it's of concern to to Commissioner Rob Manford and I think some of the some of the concerns some of the ways he's trying to address the concern are kind of ham fisted but uh, um, you know there's this emphasis on pace of play which is you know might amount to shaving five minutes off of a three hour game which you know we're talking. You know, it's a very small percentage there, um, but uh, you know, there's. I think there are, there are other things that 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 need to happen, and, and uh, I'm not quite sure how we get out of this. Um, you know, because the logical endpoint is this power versus power. Um, you know, power arms versus power bats, right. um, and it's the hitters that are making the adjustments to you know to to this. Uh, you know this new uh, way, these new ways of pitcher usage. Right. We're talking to Jay Jaffe. Jay is senior writer at Fangraphs, former SI writer. He is an MLB Network guest host and guest guest appearance, and he's a author of Cooperstown Casebook. He's got some great analytics on who makes the Hall of Fame and why. You can follow Jay on Twitter at Jay underscore Jaffe. Uh, so, Jay, given given that we are discussing this evolution of the game and how things have changed, and given, you know, obviously your expertise and kind of prediction models for who makes the Hall of Fame, how do you think that this is going to change, you know, 10 years, 15 years from now, how we view kind of er- players of this era? I mean, obviously the standards of things like 300 wins for a pitcher um, have got to be altered, basically. And how do you sort of anticipate they will be altered? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I've been writing about you know the Hall of Fame questions with regards to um, this generation of uh, uh, guys who are now you know in their in their early to mid thirties and and uh, uh, approaching the finish line. Sabathia uh, is is in his final year. Uh, Justin Verlander is what thirty six years old. Zach Greinke's thirty five years old. You know I, we're not going to be able to use three hundred games, uh, three hundred wins as 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 the main yardstick. Although you know I've been arguing for fifty years that that should never have been the yardstick. You've got plenty of pitchers who had uh, uh, far less than that. Um, I think you know we, we, the voters are going to have to adjust their standards somewhat. We've started to see it. Um, you know, Mike, for you know, for uh, for uh, uh, 20 years, there was one. You know, there was only one pitcher uh, who got into the Hall of Fame with less than 300 wins, uh, Fergie Jenkins in '92, and then it took it took till 2011 for for Burt Blylevin to get in to be the second one of of, of this uh, you know of this long stretch. Um, and uh, then 2015, you had uh, uh, Pedro Martinez and John Smoltz. 
Um, you know, lately we've seen this year we saw Roy Halladay and and and, and Mike Messina yeah. finally get in. Maybe next year, uh, if he doesn't self sabotage some more, it'll be Curtis Schilling. Uh, and finally, we've got you know a a, a a bunch of pitchers with fewer than 300 wins, and that's going to be the that's going to be the rule of thumb from now on. It's not necessary that 250 is a magic number becomes a magic number because some of those guys are are in the low 200s. Um, but getting to 200 is probably still uh, more requirement necessary for, than not. Yeah, for a starter, um, it's it's the strikeout totals that I'm keeping an eye on. It's these, you know, whether you know, Sabathia just got to 3,000 strikeouts. He's the uh, uh, 18th pitcher to get there. Uh, 15 of them are in the Hall of Fame. Only three of them are lefties. Or only three pitchers to reach that milestone are lefties. I actually took a, a, a deep dive to try to figure out why that was, um, and I think it amounts to just a lot of attrition among the, among the high strikeout lefties of earlier eras, which is just you know comes down to some bad luck. Um, Overuse you know, potentially, like Sam McDowell and Sandy Koufax, uh, uh, you know, blowing out their arms, and you know, at a time when sports medicine was was uh, was much less refined than it is now, um, you know, and and I think it's we have to look at era adjusted strikeout rates as well, uh, which is something we're doing with a new suite of stats we call plus stats, uh, you know, similar to OPS plus or ERA plus. Uh, Which are park-adjusted, right? Those yeah, are, those these, are. these aren't park-adjusted, but in time they will be. Right now, we've just got a fairly crude adjustment. That's going to the league strikeout rate, which is you know which is increasing, um, you know, at a fairly consistent rate over the last 25 years. And so, you know, when we're talking about let's say nine strikeouts per nine innings, it doesn't mean the same thing as it did 20 years ago when 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 Pedro was doing it um, or Randy Johnson. Um, so you know, we're I think we're I think we have to look at you know we're, we're going to be looking at strikeout rates. We're still looking at uh, um, you know at, at, at run prevention both through the lens of earned run average and also through fielding independent pitching. Well, well Jay, given uh, this is Eric Bradley, given your comment on strikeout rates, let's just go right to the Phillies guy Bryce Harper. Like, how do you evaluate a guy like Harper who's striking out at an extraordinary rate and walking at an extraordinary and walking, rate? Yeah. So his on base percentage is good. His uh, you know. Is, uh, he know. struck out two times last night. We were sitting right yeah, behind him. His OPS <laughs> is reasonable, but not great anymore. It's been sliding. How do you think, using the advanced metrics that you've been proposing, how do you view a guy like Harper? And are we happy? Should we be happy we have him for 13 years? Well, you know, strikeouts mean things for batters and hitters. I mean, for batters and pitchers. Um, strikeout rates for pitchers are, 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 are an indicator of, of, of longevity and dominance. Um, strikeout rates for hitters, you know, there's there's there are reasons to be concerned when you're at the upper end of them, uh, and, and you know, and maybe Harper is uh, at the upper end of them right now with uh, um, you know striking out as often as he is. But strikeout rates, you know, generally cor- you know for for hitters generally correlate with more power, with higher walk rates. Uh, teams have been less concerned about hitter strikeout rates than pitcher strikeout rates. Now, I think we're maybe approaching an extreme here, um, especially with, with looking at looking where Harper is right now. And, and uh, um, you know, you can still be an effective player when you're when when you're doing what he's doing. He's uh, slash line 219 batting average, but a 370 on base percentage and a 432 slugging percentage. I think the slugging percentage is really where we where you'd really like to see. 
uh, him doing more and knowing that he's capable. Well, I just do the math, Jay, which is the following. If you strike out, let's say, a third of the time, which he's at least at that rate, so now you're left with two-thirds of the at-bats. If you look at batting average of balls in play then, yeah. he's got to have a 450 batting average of balls in play to have a reasonable batting average, like in the 280, 290 range. So yeah, how do you think of the math? Do you think of the math differently? I don't think you're going to see as many guys in that range. And I think you know part of the problem also is, is, is uh, uh, the infield shift. You shift, that are, yeah. That are taking hits away. Um, you know, the the the, the, you know, the fact of the matter is, um, pulling the ball is is where you know pulling the ball in the air is where home runs are. Um, you know, and, and and hitters are going for that. Uh, they're adjusting their swings and their and their and their tactics. Uh, you know, to to get those 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 pulled balls in the air and get to those home runs. When you know going the opposite field is you know is, you know is it's a guaranteed hit, but not a home run. Listen, I watch a, a lot of baseball, and, and it, my whole mindset has changed. Now you hear, you see you watch a, a hard shot up the middle, and it used to be oh a single. Now it's out to the second baseman or yeah. shortstop because they're standing you know, right this, there. This is, this is this is again you know part part of you know part of the 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 cat and mouse game that's kind of led us into this little cul-de-sac that the, the baseball can't seem to find a way out of right now. And Harper, I think, is kind of a poster boy for that. Um, you know, he is a dead pull hitter. Uh, he does not go the other way very often, and he gets gets kind of locked in in this. You know, in the, we we've seen him do this before. We saw him do this last year. First half, low, very low batting average, and 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 I think uh, generally a bit disappointing. And then you know at the second half, he kind of he kind of comes know, on. He kind of he kind of comes on. I think you know it, it's a bit of a concern. I think he's gonna you know there's a lot of pressure on the guy. He's got to figure out uh, a, a better approach, and he's not helping himself. Um, you know, is by 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 fixating on on just you know one mode of. of uh, uh, attack, but right. we'll, I think we'll, you know, I think he'll straighten he, out. He's young enough and smart enough to adjust, and I think as long as the health is there, I, I do think he'll figure it out. I mean, this this is a guy who who you know has been through uh, the crucible of of, of uh, you know of, of high pressure for you know his since he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at age 16. Um, but he's got to figure out for himself, you know, where you know where the sweet spot is in in terms of you know. Trading off power for batting average, and and right. I think, um, you know, I think it'll come, but I think it it, it, it can be frustrating in, in, until it does. Listen, Jay, appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Great stuff on the baseball front. Thanks for opening our eyes on a few issues, and wish you the best with the work that you're doing. Hey, sure, thanks. Good to talk to you guys. Absolutely, Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangraphs. You can follow him on Twitter at. J underscore Jaffe, repeat guest here, keeping us up to speed on the latest in baseball analytics. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball, meaning we still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Got the whole crew in here now. Eric, Adi, Shane, and Cade. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join us. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 
7866. Drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there. Great way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics, at WMoneyBall. Rolling into the last quarter of the show, that's Dion Simpkins on the soundboard. Dion, of course, is usually in the back room pounding the bonbons this time of day. He's sound engineering us today. You can tell it's Dion by the music he's playing, keeping us up, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. We just got the phone with Jay Jaffe. Jay raises, you guys talking about velocity versus command, raised a question in my mind. In, in, in football, we often think about the traits that can be quantified precisely and objectively are probably overvalued, especially in NFL drafts, so like 40 times because mm-hmm. we can take it down to yeah. hundreds of a second in a receiver versus, like, his hands or his route running. If we could measure route running as precisely as we measure 40s, I suspect 40s wouldn't be so overvalued. Is it possible that since velocity is only one attribute in a pitcher and other attributes are harder to quantify, that it may be overvalued? And I'm especially interested in, you know, you, I mean, it's, it's pretty stunning for you to characterize p- pitchers these days, Adi, as throwing mid-90s kind of routinely, but then you throw out someone like Sabathia saying, well, he's still getting it done with mid and upper 80s, and the answer is command. All right, mm-hmm. so in this world yeah, of analytics. Maddox did it. Okay, yeah. but uh, this, Maddox, the, but greatest, I, the greatest reliever of all time, threw one pitch, oh, and eventually yeah. in the low 90s, if that, and it just and people knew which pitch was coming. But that wasn't because of command. That was Rivera had this insane movement at the okay, end of so his pitch fine. that nobody. So, I, so there's multiple attributes. I just want to focus on any no, one and, of the and, other and non-velocity I, attributes and ask. I, and I think you make an excellent point because I think that you know we talked about really what's driving a lot of this velocity change. It's just this. Huge, I think, selection, selection bias yeah. that's happening, like among like really young baseball and players. And I mean, I think you're right. I mean, velocity. You know, you can be out there in little league with like a radar gun, like selecting for They're players, um, and it's easy to measure. It's easy to quantify. And it's easy to compare players on, as opposed to command, where you need some more advanced analytics. And so, I think a large, you know, we've got basically the result of a generation of or two generations now of, of, of players that have had a lot of selection bias specifically for velocity, and it probably command is an undervalued aspect of this. I think there's also the fact that command is most important at this, the senior, the highest level. Right. At the lower levels, particularly in college, with velocity. Yeah. velocity will just knocks everybody out in Little League. Faster pitcher, you're yeah. done. I mean, all the way through high school, I mean, guys like Trevor Bauer, they were throwing perfect games in high school just on, on, on velocity alone. But when you get to the major leagues, you got to have more. What separates the, so the, the you, players so, is, is command, and they've selected out of it. And you, and it's it's so I think that I think this is going to be the new frontier for pitchers, rather than. I'm than, just uh, asking how to quantify it and why not quantify it. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I, just for our listeners here in Warren Way, but the topic that Adi just brought up is one of the things we deal with. When I spent two years at ETS, we deal with all the time. The variables that are predictive of getting you into the top set are not necessarily discriminating once you're in the top set. And look, we deal with that with admissions all the time, which is, you know, once you prune off people that don't get a certain SAT score, then certain things don't become predictive anymore because everybody's good at those things. And so this idea, matter of fact, we do it all the time of these two-stage prediction models. If you'd like, you know, sometimes a Tobit 2 model, like what gets (laughs) you into a 
one or a zero, major leagues or not. And then once you're in the major leagues, what's predictive of success in the major leagues? And so these type of two-stage models, at least in marketing, we think about all the time. What gets you into the consideration set of somebody, a purchaser, is not necessarily the same thing that gets you selected amongst the five or six brands. So this is a general problem. Speed is great. Speed is great, but it's not. So it does not. It may not be that yeah. velocity. It may not be that differentiated. So the claim would be that. It, so here's a proposal conjecture that 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 a team would have an advantage if they'd find a way to quantify some of these other attributes like command. So for example, you said if a guy can throw to any of the four quadrants, you know, on will. Then he's got an advantage. So, is there not a way to test that in some way, and and so that you can objectively quantify? Now it's harder because well, you have to know the intention, right? The, the traditional way of evaluating that is walk rate because walks yeah, but, are terrible, and if you got the better control, right? You but have we need something much more, much, much more upstream because I, velocity is so upstream. Yes, yeah, so right. let me think of two ways. I'm not saying these are perfect. One would be you could look at the position of the catcher's mitt. And you could see the fraction of pitches that actually hit, assuming the catcher is not strategically moving his mitt to f- confuse the batter. You could look at how far the catcher has to move By the way, his glove. Eric, that's the definition of command. When they speak no, of command, right. they okay. mean hitting, well, throwing great, I love this. This, is, this yeah. is fantastic. Like, literally ask how far the catcher's mitt has to move to catch right. the catcher. Right. And, yeah. and, and fan graphs are, are actually investigating this exactly in yeah. this way. The problem is you actually have to watch the video to do it. Yes, of course. So there isn't but, but, but data. You could, but you don't have to watch the video. You could, yeah, you could this could be automated. Artificial. This could be, but yeah. it could be automated it in large be, scale. But it hasn't been done. The and, way, and it's not going to be done at these, like, you know, earlier. It's going to take generations. Right. Yeah. For this to the second come way down to little league sec- or something like that. The second way to answer a Kate's question, which might be possible, would be through eye tracking data. So now, again, these are somewhat imperfect measures. The pitcher, I assume, is looking at a spot, looking at a oh, location. Wow. Oh, geez. No, no, I'm just saying if we're yeah. going to go to 21st century measurement, <laughs> let's look at the possibility of eye tracking data. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe look. Can, here's what I would guess happens if you track the pitcher's eyes. Before he goes into his windup, he's probably staring for a certain number of milliseconds at a given location to where he's trying to throw the ball. That can be identified through eye tracking data. Just like, again, I'll go back to marketing, so that's my home field. We study when people stand in front of shelves where their eyes look and spend the most focal time, like which products they're considering and which one they're really considering, you can do that for baseball with eye tracking. So There's they, no reason why we couldn't. Well, it's interesting. When they're when they looking at a shelf, they're... 18 inches yeah, away. Yeah, you know where they're looking. So it's 60, 60 feet away. Yeah, I think the angle... <laughs> I didn't say it was perfect. I was giving Kate an I think, answer. I think that's, uh, that's astronomical. It, no, it's a fantastic concept. Yeah. yeah. So so I just want to follow up because I, I I think that's an interesting trade-off and I've not thought about it in baseball before. It has to exist. And so I, that means it's a frontier you know, margin that a team can yeah. pursue. But, but speaking of command, you talk about one of the things that, that w- that's been in, in all the, a lot of the newspapers recently is this observation that hit-by-pitches are at an all-time record this yeah. year. Which is not that remarkable if you look at the previous year. Was it an all-time record? And the previous year was as well. So this okay. has been a, a continuous trend for many, many years to increasing numbers of hit by pitches, which indicates what is that? What does that have to do with command? Is that the opposite of command? Because hitting hitting a pitch a batter seems like the worst thing you can do. It's the complete so failure. My, my favorite answer is the most boring answer. You always look for the most boring uh, answer, which right? is usually First, the right one. Which yeah. is just more pitches per at bat, and so you're going to have more hit. 
And, and that better. probably is, is potentially the right answer. I actually think that with increasing walks, increasing strikeouts, more and more pitches per at-bat. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the right answer. One thing you could test, at least, is are the batters systematically moving closer to the plate than and, they used and that, to. And, 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 they and could, there could be a could crowding be of the plate issue. And there, there also could be that they're, they're throwing more inside more than they yeah. ever did, and that's potentially it. So let's and, take, go ahead. But, I mean, it's, I was going to follow up with another question for you all, is, is on the opposite side, intentional walk. The intentional base on balls. Where do you think that is relative to history this year? Low. Low? High? Whatever. I'm going to guess high. I'm going to guess high, too. High, too. It's actually at a record low. So oh, hey. gets it. Baseball expert. I'm going to it's an over-under. Zach, that one does not count. That was not an yeah. over-under. It's, it's not a record low. It's, it's, we don't all, it's, it's actually at a record low. But it, it, like hit by pitches, has also been dropping essentially continuously, or what we call monotonically, from the uh, high. And I'll tell you when the high was. We won't play the guessing game. It was in 68. And what was 1968? Uh, to change the height of the mound. Uh, yeah. No, it was the year before they changed the height of the mound. It was a record high, uh, intentional walks. Where It's where batting was absolutely the worst. Intentional walks were the highest Why? in that year. Why? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that a walk is least... If you have, oh, it's, there's you, less damage. Walk, yeah. you, it doesn't cause. There's no one on base. Uh, you can, that's a great you can, answer. So you can just simply walk the guy that is going to cause you it's trouble. Good. Today, a home run here can can do anything at any time. It's yeah. good. All right, we're going to do a real quick run. This is going to be speed round on a few topics. Um, Beth Page Black, PGA. It's the first one ever in June, at least in the modern era, in June or May. How interested are you? What's going to go down? How are you going to take it in? I'm excited. I mean, I I mean, it's taken basically Tiger Woods. You know, getting me get back into back golf, in. but I'm 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 really excited for it. I'm actually excited because I think there's not just Tiger Woods, but he's not the number one player in golf. How will Dustin Johnson do? Rory McIlroy seems to be playing well, and also, how about the guy that's actually won three of the last six majors? His name's Brooks Kepka. Yeah, my God. And by the way, in the ones he didn't win, he's been in the top five. Yeah. So. He, to me, is my favorite at sure every is. tournament. Does it feel special to you because it's a Long Island course? It does because I've been to Beth Page Black mm-hmm. and I've played the course. I mean, I won't say my score. Well, they, I don't play the <laughs> seventy-four hundred version, seventy-four hundred yard version of Beth Page Black. I think it is a special place, and um, I like the way Brandel described it. This is going. You hit the ball into the rough. I guarantee you, your You're stroke goes at least up a half on that particular yeah. hole. So you think about it. You do that two or three times around. That can cost you four to six strokes in the tournament, and that's the difference between winning and losing. Yeah. Let me just say that until the last Masters, I had never watched a round of golf on TV. I watched an hour and a half the last time. I'm going to watch it this time too. All right. And I know the names of all these people that you're talking all about. Right. So this is an amazing advantage. We're completely corrupting. <laughs> we're corrupting Audi's life. Five years yeah. in, we're just completely. Yeah corrupted it. So uh, the NBA draft lottery last night was like this ridiculously fun cotton candy kind of entertainment. Is is the lottery underused in sports? Do we need to have it in more places? Oh. The lottery. Like, <laughs> where would know. you know? I don't know. Where, where would some you good think? Twitter threads. Outside. Let's just, you know, let's start just using it more. Well, uh, college you know. football. Why don't these top recruits, we could actually have college football, like, take <laughs> okay. out recruiting, just have college football go lottery. So pros and cons. It would work just as well. <laughs> why, why, why does baseball and football not use the lottery for draft order? I What's think, special about basketball? Well, 
I think for basketball, I think the issue is is that the top, as we talked about this earlier, the top recruit is that value and valuable, and that it encourages too much tanking. Yeah, I and, I, think, and, I, and I think it's easier. Like somehow tanking just is not a, a as much of a it's thing. Not good. But what's the sum? Why is the somehow? What's the somehow? Why is tanking such more of a problem? Because the, the, the expected than, value will, yeah, reward is so right. much more in basketball yeah, and right. football. I, I, I think those top, that top pick is more predictably good in the NBA in basketball it swings, than it is in the other you really sports. had the sense last night mm-hmm. that an entire franchise. Swung. Hockey too, you know the Gretzky's or you know Connor. Well, they, you know. the NHL r- flips over the top two picks apparently. I think, by the way, you guys had it really right in the first half hour of the show where you talked about maybe they've gone a little bit too far. I know Shane talked about it, where the top three teams are only at fourteen percent now. Yeah, in some low. sense, it's too low. It's too low. And you know, if I'm sitting there and I'm the Phoenix Suns or the Cleveland Cavaliers and I ended up at five and six, I'm thinking, how did this happen to me? Yeah. I mean, we're the worst team by far. And they ended up at five and six. I mean, I'm just saying, I think they so went too how, far how from 25. How did they decide those numbers? numbers? And also, the top three are equal. And then, if you're right, as, then there's, if you're the worst team, you can do, you could be as low as five now. I don't know how they I, came I, I up with that. I grant that it's a very difficult process, and someone's going to complain no matter what. But I would be fascinated to know what's the process by which they arrived at those numbers. All right, on the NBA. What are you thinking about for the semis? Toronto, Milwaukee, open when? Open tonight. Tonight. Yeah. Well, let me let me say the following: uh, a stat that well, it's not a stat, a fact that most people don't know. Whoever wins the East will have home court in the finals. Both of those teams had better records than the Warriors. I did not realize both that. of them. All right. And so that at least I know you guys talked about it in the first it's the, half hour. At least that gives Milwaukee or Toronto Something. a puncher's yeah, chance that's against right. Golden State because at least they've got home, and Durant home. potentially being hobbled and, and, and Durant. Although, as you see, all all Golden State does is switch to the other form of superior <laughs> basketball <laughs> yeah, that they have, which is right. not give it to Durant and get out of the way. Yeah. But you said it right, Shane. It's less degrees of freedom. You have now. You're right. Curry can have bad games, but here's the problem. Damn it! In basketball, they play best of seven. If they could only play best of one, those <laughs> yeah, are that certainly would give Milwaukee or Toronto a better puncher's chance. But you're right. No, you described it. If Curry game. doesn't score whatever nine threes and thirty eight last night, yeah, they could lose. So, mm-hmm. But he's not going to do. He's going to have four good games. Yeah, he's going pro- to. No, I mean, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not really arguing that Golden State is not going to win this thing. I've they're been looking, arguing that since day solid. one. But more solid than ever. Yeah. yeah, there's a connection between these last two topics. How much? chance do you want to bake into the process and where should it be baked in where should it not be baked in i mean it's actually kind of fascinating that the nba does this lottery system for the top 13 14 teams the nhl does it now for three and if nba nfl doesn't this is these are strategic choices on introducing chance or not yeah and it's fascinating and it's 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 done not really for entertainment purposes it's done for fairness purposes i want to bring up one other fact that i thought about about the nba just quickly if you think about the the champions over the last 20 years there's only one team when kind of they went what I'll call non-contiguous or non-consecutive runs to the finals. So think about it. When Michael Jordan, when they won the title in 98, they never went back to the finals. The Lakers, when they won it in 2002 or three, they never went back to the finals. In other words, they, they consecutively. The Heat, once they went for four straight years, then they didn't make it. Then they never went back. 
the Warriors, I think, when they don't go to the finals, whatever year that is, two years from now, three years from now, I don't think they'll go back. The only team that has gone kind of on, off, on, off has been the Spurs. Yeah. The only team in the last 20 years, and in some sense, once their run ended, was able to start again and say, okay, we didn't go to the finals two years ago, for the last two years, but we can go again. So you said it's been the Spurs. The basketball is dynastic in this way? Oh, it's very dynastic. Yes. It's obviously dynastic, yes. but I think the Spurs exactly are a very are a fascinating outlier to that. They're I don't the know if it's over the last twenty years. What, it's the only team yeah. that has been able to do that. Fellas, we're around the home stretch now. We need to hit our last segment. It's Warden Moneyballs over under. Eric, they've given us more than we can cover. You want to pick a few here? I do. I've got four. I want to pick quickly. Let's start with baseball because Adi and I always want to start with baseball. <laughs> Will the champion of the AL? come from the AL East. So you basically have three teams to pick from, the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Rays. So .5 AL championships for those AL East teams. So will the AL champion come from the AL East? I'll start with Adi Weiner. Yes. Okay, so that's over. <laughs> that's that's over. Shane? I'm going to say no under the Shane Jensen coin flip principle to the playoffs. Well, you have to work in the numbers of teams that are going to make it. Well, two, two of those teams could... will probably make it. In other words, it one will be three. the division winner, one will be the wild card. Well, three. no, I mean, the two, yeah, exactly. Well, but can't oh, be the, real, the real team, exactly. It's only going to be at most two teams, and it's only a 50% chance that it's going to be two teams. Right, because the wild card teams exactly. play each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I've done the coin flips so already in my yeah. head. No, no, no. Let me repeat Shane's math here. <laughs> yeah. The best case would be if they're two of the four, but there's some probability they're not two yeah. of the four, therefore it has to be lower than yeah. 50%. Yeah. Okay, Shane's going under. I, 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 I'll go under as well. We, we haven't even named another team. But the, the Astros. Best, best, the Astros? Best, the best, team, the best, best team's record, the Astros. Best record in the AL is the Astros right now. All right, and I'm going to go over because I think one of those teams will win the title. All right, let's go to some golf here. Matter of fact, this was a question I asked Brandel Chambly. The winner of the PGA, their golf betting rank, over under seven and a half. Like, will one of the top seven people win that are ranked right now, or it will be somebody below that? And I think I could read the names again, but I gave you guys the names. So I'll start with Shane Jensen. Over, well, so under would mean you think it's going to be one of the top seven. Over would be not one of the top. I'm seven. going to take the over. Brandel Chambly convinced me that, like you know, the the what 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 works for will work for this course is a little bit different than what works for most courses, and therefore the top seven are not represented. By the way, how wonderful was his answer? He goes, yeah. "I'm fine with top seven, just not those seven. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was such a clever answer. Yeah, that's, that a, he that's, gave. A, that's a hard pass. That's what that is. That's yeah, a hard that was good. No. All right, so. Yeah, I'll go over for sure. This is an easy one in my mind. Those odds are favorite odds are always over bet, and so if you, if you actually added up the probability, the implied probability on the rest of the field, it would be a it would be above fifty percent. That's because these are sub additive or whatever. But also, um, I agree that uh, that the, that this that the course suit sets up differently. It's well, I agree. It's, I'm convinced that the course sets up differently, and so I'm happy to go first. The biggest answer, though. PGA biggest field in championship golf, and that's one of the reasons we get more obscure winners more often. Hmm. Yeah, so that's just a, like well, we always we actually talked about that at the time of the Masters, which is that the Masters I think there's 80 people that play the PGA. You know, PGA professionals get to play. I'm not <laughs> saying they're going to win, but I mean, it's what's the numbers? I think it's somewhere around 140 yeah, to 150, yeah. Yeah. somewhere in that. It's almost. So what, double. Are you going over? Uh, no. I'm going. Oh, no. really? I'm, go, I'm oh, going right. under, but not because of Tiger Woods. You know, I've, no one's been more on the Tiger train than me. I, st- you know, this Brooks Kepka. Yeah, I know. It's every ridiculous. guy, time this guy tees it up, he's. Uh, I mean, I, uh, 
I like it, so I'm going under. I'm going to think it's one of the top well, seven. Well, the, the mathematical arguments made by my colleagues have been convincing over. Okay, so we got one <laughs> under and three over. Right, and by the right. way, similar just to stay with golf quickly, ten and a half over under for Tiger Woods. His, by the way, that's at about fifty. Yeah, his finish, his finish in the tournament. By the way, that has a minus one fifteen now. So that's about with the vig and everything. That's about right. So ten and a half for Tiger. I'll start with me. I think um, I think Tiger's going to go under. I think he'll be top ten. Um, I'm happy to root for Tiger, and since it's about a fifty-fifty, and there's no 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 cost, no cost under. Uh, I'm going to go under too, but it's just a hard argument. It's not really a head argument. Uh, I'm going to go under, but I'm I'm worried about these headlines about his restaurant being sued by these folks who the bartender there died in a wreck, and they're yeah. inside. This is a distraction. And he hasn't played a round of competitive golf since he won the Masters. I'm not worried about that. I, I am. I'm, That's I'm, a good thing. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried about the first nine holes. Okay, quickly, last two. Blazers 1.5 wins in this in this series. So oh. I'll, I'll start with Shane. So does it go to at least Game Six? No, I'm going to go under. Hell no, not close. I'm going under. <laughs> under. I got four unders. And the last one related to last night, Rookie of the Year, 0.5 for Zion. So in other words, is he going to be the Rookie of the Year or not? So if you think he is going to be, you go over. If you think not. You go under. So I'll go with Cade Massey. To do we start. know anything about the base rates on the number one pick being rookie of the year? I'm uh, we do, but we're not going to tell you before you go over <laughs> come under. Come on. <laughs> come on. You're allowed to ask questions. No. Uh, that's the, it's I, not that I, high. I would, I would go I could go back in the last 10 years. But he's I, a yeah. generational player. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, generational. Generational. That's, Your that's, own words. That's the challenge. You have to blend. That wasn't my words. <laughs> I, I wasn't on the show was, the first half yeah, hour. I'm saying his Cade's words. No, it was Shane's words. I don't know whose words, but they were words. Blending base rates with individuated information. That's the whole challenge. I'm going to go base rates. I don't. I mean, look, the guy looks phenomenal to me, but what do I know? I'm going base rates. There's a lot of other first first there are a lot of other rookies yes yeah, so, so i'm going on un, i'm going under i don't think he'll be the rookie of the year it's why, getting boring why, why? for everyone i i don't think he will be because um i actually don't i think he's a player without a position in the nba mm-hmm. and so i'm not exactly sure how he because if he dominates on athleticism and size he's not going to dominate on athleticism and size so i think at duke you know it's kind of it's the same thing what got him what to the got NBA to college is not may not be what makes him great. I don't think he can't be great, but I don't see an obvious position for him in the NBA. So I'm going under. Well, the argument for over is that the the rest of the players are just not in his league, and so where is this? I may not where get is the opportunity he gets. Right. Where he is this will play. Gonna be? He can make play. Now he's with the Pelicans. He may play 40 minutes a game. That's right. So he might see quite the scoring, and he'll look terrific on paper. Um, on the other hand, the base rate argument is, I think, the best one. So I'm going to have to take the under on this one. Last but not least, change it. I'm going to take the over right, just yes. to be contrary. All right. Even though, I mean, really, and it's why I should ever go the opposite of Eric Bradlow and anything basketball related, I don't know. But I'm going to do it just to make it interesting. Thank you, Shane. Appreciate that. All right, we appreciate we, that. We'll get some updated scoring on our over-unders at some point. We are keeping track of these things now. And there's a healthy debate on the right way to do the scoring. I think the minute is, I take the lead, we have to report it. Cause it's, only, <laughs> it's not going to last long. <laughs> we might dedicate a segment on the show to figuring out the right way to keep score on our over-under. Because it raises all kinds of interesting performance evaluation questions, which is the heart of the show 
after all. All right, guys, that has been another Wharton Money, about two hours. We do this live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10, for the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This has been Cade Massey. Dion Simpkins on the soundboard, our associate producer. Many thanks to him. Matty Dats, running the whole show, boss man. The reason we are as good as we are, Matty D, keep it up. And Zach, our erstwhile RA, keeping us informed. Thanks to the whole crew. Guys, a lot of things to watch between now and then. Come back and join us next week. Enjoy your sports.